Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter... Excuse me. First Corinthians chapter five, verses one through five. The title this morning is <clears throat> sexual sin defiles the church. Sexual sin defiles the church. What will sexual sin do to the church? It's definitely a, an important thing to think about. And Paul, if you remember, said earlier, we're called to be saints. We're called to be saints. And this means holy living to the glory of God. And if a Christian loves his or her church, they're they're not going to stand by and allow sin to weaken the church and uh, maybe even ruin its testimony. In Paul's day, Corinth was a lot like our society today. People were determined to have their own way, do their own thing, and especially when it came to satisfying their lust. And sexual promiscuity was out of control. Then, like now, the church was affected by it. The whole chapter deals with the problem of immorality in the church, and it was mostly sexual immorality. And as serious as the immorality itself was, the church's tolerance of it was just as serious. And Paul goes from dealing with party divisions to dealing with other problems that he had come to know about. And the first case that Paul deals with is incest. And that's where a member of the church got married to or was living with his stepmother and was allowed to stay in the fellowship. The marriage of full brothers and sisters was considered immoral all through the Roman Empire, except in Egypt. Parent-child incest was universally detested all through the Roman world. And it was one of the few crimes that all cultures agreed was terrible. And even though most incestuous relationships today have innocent victims, molestation is never the victim's fault. Its Roman legal punishment was banishment to an island. And relations uh, with stepmothers were treated like relations with mothers, as incestuous. And here Paul uses the language of Leviticus 18, verses 6 through 8, where it reads, You must never have sexual relationships with a close relative, for I am the Lord. Do not violate your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother. You must not have sexual relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with any of your father's wives, for this would violate your father. So chapter 5 gives us a peek into the sad condition of the Corinthian people. It was a mixed population. It was exposed, uh, uh, that was exposed to influences that were definitely harmful to a high morality. Through a lot of business, they had contact with the wickedness of foreigners, and developing luxurious living, and the games that were held there in the area, as well as the worship of the goddess Venus. A church that was coming from a community like this could not help being infected by its low morality. So we can see how this can happen in a gross society. 
So let's now read verses 1 through 5 and see what Paul has to say. It is, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned, that he who has done this thing or this, this deed might be taken away from among you. For indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. In the name of your Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to, the, to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that is, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So Paul's talking about church discipline now for this individual. The first thing that the Corinthians needed to do or needed to see was the need for discipline. And it seems that they had rationalized or played down the seriousness of the immorality in the church. They didn't see a need for discipline. The first thing Paul had to do was show them that this was a serious case of immorality. And it shouldn't be tolerated and they should have already known this. The fact that it was already, as verse 1 said, Paul said, actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you. This shows that everybody knew. And they should have been shocked by it like Paul was. The church had been carefully taught by Paul and other ministers. And the Corinthian believers were well grounded in Christian doctrine and morals. They'd also been taught in a previous letter, a lost letter from Paul about the need for disciplining believers who continued in sin. Paul said later on in verse 9 here in chapter 5, he says, I wrote you in my letter not to keep company with sexually immoral people. And it's pretty sad to think the problems that Paul deals with in this chapter weren't new to the Corinthians and that they tolerated them. The Corinthian church had a reputation for immorality. And Paul had heard about it more than once. Just like he had just said, he'd written to them about it before. But the specific problem he mentions was a kind of immorality that he said not even the Gentiles practiced. You know, living with his father's wife. The word immorality uh, comes from the Greek word porneia, where we get our English word pornography. And it refers to any unlawful sexual behavior. Here it's incest because a man was living with his father's wife, his stepmother. She wasn't his natural mother, but had married his father either after his mother had died or been divorced. The Old Testament is clear that this is incest. Sexual relations between a man and his stepmother was the same as relations between him and his real mother. And anyone that was guilty of this or other sexual sins, sexual abominations, was to be cut off from his people. And this is a reference to capital punishment. That's how serious it was. Paul said this kind of sin didn't even exist among the Gentiles, those who didn't know God. Now, this person was guilty of a sin that even his pagan neighbors didn't do or tolerate. So the testimony of the church in Corinth was badly hindered <clears throat> by this particular thing. Now, three things about that relationship seem clear. First, the present tense indicates that the sinful behavior had been going on for some time, and it was still going on. 
It, was a, it wasn't a one-time or short-time affair, but it was a continuous one and an open one. They may have been living together like husband and wife. Secondly, since idolatry is not charged here, the relationship between the son and the stepmother probably had caused her to divorce from the father. And at that time, neither of them was legally married. And then third, because Paul calls for no discipline of the woman, maybe she was a Christian. Uh, I'm sorry, maybe wasn't a Christian. So that being the case, the man being a believer was not only immorally, but unequally related to the woman. But the thing that really shocked Paul was that the church didn't seem to care. They didn't seem to have a problem with it and were even proud of it. Said they were puffed up instead of mourning. Paul said in verse 2, you are puffed up and you have not rather mourned. And nothing seemed to get through to their pride and their boasting. You know, it seemed that they were so pleased with themselves. They were so uh, self-confident that they either excused or rationalized the most wicked behavior in the church. And maybe it was their way of expressing, you know, their their Christian freedom, their Christian liberty. And maybe they looked at it at at their uh, toleration as an expression of Christian love. But whatever they were thinking, their pride had blinded them to the clear truth of God's standards. And maybe they felt so secure because they were followers of a of great spiritual leader like Paul or Apollos or Peter that they thought they could sin and, and there'd be no consequences. But he said in verse 2, Paul said they should have mourned instead. A church that doesn't mourn over sin, especially in its own fellowship, is on the verge of spiritual disaster. You see, when we're no longer shocked by sin... We lose a strong defense against sin. And that was the pattern that was followed by the Corinthian church. She proudly followed her own feelings and her own thoughts rather than God's word. And as a result, she ignored and maybe even justified obvious sin that was in their midst. In Revelation chapter 2, 19 and 20, the church at Thyatira, Jesus said they had love, they had faith, they had service and patience. It was a church that was growing in good deeds. But the problem was it was tolerating sin. Jesus said that they, that they were tolerating Jezebel to lead my servants astray. She was encouraging them to worship idols, eat food offered to idols, and commit sexual sin. They refused to repent of their sin. So God had brought harsh judgment against Jezebel and everyone who took part in her immorality. Now, the punishment here is a warning to all Christians and a reminder of God's holiness and his righteous standards for his people. And that, as he said in Revelation 2, 23, Jesus said, he searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your works. You see, God is very serious when it comes to the church's holiness. And in Hebrews twelve fourteen, it says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord salvation our salvation hinges upon the holiness upon our holiness he commands he commands his children to take it just as serious as he does sin in the church and if you don't repent of your sins it increases and it spreads its infection and its death and in paul's second letter to the corinthian church he was still very concerned about his spiritual and moral condition 
Listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 21 from the Living Bible. He says, I'm afraid that when I come, God will humble me before you and I will be sad and mourn because many of you have sinned, uh, who have sinned became sinners and don't even care about the wicked, impure things that you've done. Your lust and immorality and the taking of other men's wives. They weren't grieved about it. They weren't sad about that. And because the Corinthians wouldn't mourn over their sin, they caused Paul to mourn and they caused the Holy Spirit to grieve. Christians are not supposed to tolerate sin in the church any more than they are to tolerate it in their own lives. Paul said in Ephesians 5, 3 and 11, he says, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. And he says, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Again, Christians are not to tolerate sin in the church. Matter of fact, it's to be exposed by the church. It's important to expose it. Listen to what Dr. Harry Ironside said regarding exposing evil. He said, error is like leaven, of which we read a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Truth mixed with error is equivalent to all error, except that it is more innocent looking and therefore more dangerous. God hates such a mixture. Any error or any truth and error mixture calls for definite exposure and repudiation. To condone such is to be unfaithful to God and his word and treacherous to imperil souls for whom Christ died. In other words, it's your responsibility, the church's responsibility, every church member, not just mine or other leaders, to expose sinful practices in the church. Now, without being nosy, all right, we are required to always be looking for any kind of immorality or sin that threatens the purity of our body, the church. You know, again, without being known, you're not, not you know, going into little, you know, little groups of fellowship. Hey, you heard anything juicy lately? Or hey, you heard any kind of sin that's going on in the church? You know, no. You know, the Bible says that your sin will find you out. It will be exposed. And then if we hear of it, we need to let, we need to expose it. Again, we have to get all the facts, find out, you know, and make sure that it's not just some rumor. But again, we are, we are to do that. As Paul here, he was, you know, he was notified of it. He, he had, he had a validation that it had taken place. And so again, um, it's our responsibility. We have to understand the need to spot and to cleanse sin in the church. And when it's found, we should, we, we should be saddened by it until it is removed. And Jesus gave the basic way of church discipline, again, as he said in, in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. Listen to what Jesus said. He said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, notice, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. A lot of Christians think that if you discipline somebody, that's not Christian love. They think it's not showing grace. Paul said in Romans 6, 1 and 2, he says, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He said, Certainly not. 
And God's grace is not a dumping ground for sin. And the world has redefined the the meaning of biblical love today. You know, in in the minds and the redefining of, of the biblical term love today, it means acceptance of all false religions. Tolerance of all sinful behavior. Tolerance of all false doctrines and never offend anyone with truth. Truth is truth and it will always be truth no matter, what it, no matter whether you like it or not, no matter how you try to change it. Jesus said he was truth, the truth. The Bible also says, also says he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, which means the truth is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. It will always be the truth. It will forever be the truth. In the bulletin for the Easter quote, I put, Easter says you can put truth in a grave, but it won't stay there. You can redefine it. You can disguise it. You can lie about it. You can call it whatever you want, but it will never change. But you see, we've been schooled. We've been conditioned to see it in the world's light. That it's not appropriate to say anything negative. And being a good witness once meant being faithfully representing Jesus Christ. Even when it meant being unpopular. We've redefined, we've even redefined what Christ-like means today. We've defined Christ-like to mean nice. Be nice to people. And and we are to be, don't get me wrong. But by that definition of Christ-like meaning nice, Christ wasn't always Christ-like based on that definition. Jesus confronted people with sin. He raised his voice at sin. At the people committing the sin. He threw tables. He called people snakes. Blind hypocrites, whitewashed tombs. You know, if we don't talk about sin and hell because we want to be nice, then we are trying to be nicer than Jesus was, who spoke a great deal about heaven and hell. And if you don't, then you truly don't love them if you don't discipline them. Hebrews 12, 6 tells us, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Jesus disciplines us because he loves us. And and we will discipline our brothers and sisters in the Lord if we really love Jesus Christ and truly love them. See, Paul wanted the church to side with him, to agree with him on how serious this sin was. To recognize that we need to discipline this person and to take the right action as Paul had already done in his own mind. He says, as if he was there. Look at verse 3. I'm going to read it from the living, the, the living version. It says, Even though I'm not there with you, I've been thinking a lot about this. And in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I have already decided what to do, just as though I were there. Paul is saying in his heart, Look, I've already passed judgment on this person, and I know what needs to be done. So the church was to, get, was to come together in the name and the power of Jesus Christ in verse 4. And they were to do what they knew was Christ's will and do what Jesus would do if he were there. Again, the people knew what Jesus taught, Matthew 18. And Paul wants them to apply those same principles here in this particular situation. The church was responsible for the discipline. 
And when a church acts in Jesus' name, which is according to his word, they're acting in his power. And it's the context of his teaching about church discipline that Jesus said in Matthew 18, 18 through 20. He said, I tell you the truth. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. I also tell you this. If two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among you. Jesus will always bless and empower what we do in his name. If we've followed his instruction. And if we've made sure that we have every fact confirmed. Not just on hearsay. We know then that our decision about guilt or innocence, where he referred to it as binding or loosing, will be in accordance with heaven's decision. And when we meet in Christ's name, he's always with us, doing the discipline himself. So the church is never more in agreement and harmony with heaven and moving and operating in perfect accord with Jesus than when we are dealing with sin to maintain purity in the body of Christ. When the Corinthians got together to take disciplinary action, Paul said in verse 4 that he would be with them in the spirit. And that he was now writing for them in the second, uh, for the second time, according to verse 9. And he planned to keep on giving them counsel and encourage them to do the Lord's will, even though he couldn't be with them in person. So to put this so-called believer out of their fellowship is to, is to excommunicate him. This would be, as he said in verse 5, to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Paul was saying, you need to separate this man from the body. You need to excommunicate him from fellowship in the church. Now, when he says uh, to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, when he says destruction, he doesn't mean annihilation. He doesn't mean just wiping him out. He doesn't mean loss of salvation, but simply to his ruin. In other words, sometimes... When a person doesn't want to, you know, give up their sin and, and forsake their sin and, 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 you know, repent. God will let them go and say, okay, if this is what you want, go for it. Go for it. Because sometimes that's what it takes for a person to realize they have to get so deep down into the pit that all they can do is look up. They have to, that, that sin, God will allow it to eat them up to the point where they recognize, man, I messed up. I need to go back to where I came from. Get back into the body of Christ. The design and the intent of the discipline that Paul's talking about here involves the principle of allowing bodily affliction for spiritual gain. Because sometimes that's the only way God can get the attention of a sinning person. The design helps us to understand the value of discipline. Discipline of the believer through church discipline, is not final or permanent. It's corrective. And those who are against discipline are the ones who are lacking the love because they're not trying to help the sinning person correct his ways. In 1 Timothy 1.20, Paul writes about Hymenaeus and Alexander, and he said, of whom I delivered them to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. So in the church body, we have a wonderful kind of protection and power with other believers we are a body together a body of believers every part of the body has its job to do 
And I've mentioned before that, that in the New Testament, we see the, the two words, one another, at least 50 times, one another. For example, Paul said in Romans 12, 10, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another. In Romans 4, 13, Paul said, let us not judge one another. Romans 15, 5, <clears throat> he said, be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 12, 25, <clears throat> Paul said, there should be no schism or no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. You see, we have a special relationship with one another. Every part of the body is important. Later on in chapter 12, points, Paul points this out. He points out that, that we really can't be isolated from the body of Christ. We really can't be a lone ranger uh, when it comes to the body of Christ. We can't live in isolation from the body of Christ. The hand can't say to the foot, hey man, I don't like you. I don't want, I don't want to be with you. I don't need you. And, and, and I've heard people say over the years, you know, I, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. I don't have to go to church to worship the Lord. And this is true. If you can't get to church, you're incapacitated in some way, your bedroom, your hospital room, wherever it might be, that can be your sanctuary. But if I can get to church, I'm to be in church because I'm a Christian, because I'm to be with the body of Christ. We need each other. That's why. How can the hand get to the place where it needs to be if the feet doesn't take them? We need each other. We're strengthened by each other. We're encouraged by each other. We're helped by each other. There's a strength that we have when we're together. There's an excitement and a joy when we're together. There's power that's created when we're together. But when you isolate yourself from the body, you're out there on your own. And you're an open target for the enemy. You don't have the support of the body around you. When a lion is searching for prey, what is he looking for? That one that has strayed from the herd. Why? He doesn't have the protection from the herd. Many times when you see those, those, those nature shows and you see a, a herd of whatever it might be, you know, running together and, and, and there's a lion on, on the prowl, uh, he won't charge the whole flock. He's looking for that isolated one. And that flock together, that herd together, they will charge the lion. And they will fend him off. But he waits and he looks and he watches for that one that will stray from the herd. And he'll attack that one because he's weak without the strength of the herd. What did Peter say? The devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's looking for that one. That is not does not have the strength of the body, the rest of the herd. So the plan of turning this person over to Satan is excommunicating him from the strength of fellowship that he has in the body of Christ. It is not done to be mean. And he's excommunicated from the fellowship where he can really experience the full effect of the sin that he wants to continue living in. The sin that he's committing. And we don't often <clears throat> realize the value of fellowship in the body of Christ. We don't realize how important fellowship is and the strength that we get from it. The help that we have as we pray for one another, as we lift up one another, as we inspire one another and lighten one another's load. I mean, it's a great design because, again, God created. He knew what he was doing. 
If it wasn't for that strength and the help that we get from the whole body, we would be a lot more open to the attacks of the enemy. Proverbs 18.1, Solomon said this from the uh, Amplified Version. He said, He who willfully separates and estranges himself from God and man seeks his own desire and justification to break out against all wise and sound judgment. Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. To neglect... To, to neglect meeting together, services, and again, and again, there are, there are people who have to work, you know, there are people that are sick, that's, that's understandable. This, this is not being legalistic, all right? It's looking at what God has said about fellowship and the importance of it and why we need it, all right? It, it, it's, again, for the strength and the help of others. It, we don't just go to church, remember that. You don't just go, you are the church. You are the church. We gather here on Wednesdays and Sunday mornings and Sunday nights to share our faith, to strengthen our faith, to strengthen each other in the Lord. And, and like I said this morning, it's, it's really awesome to see after church service, people hanging out and they're talking and you see them laughing and enjoying and you see some praying with each other. You know, some asking other, hey, would you pray for me? I'm going through this or I'm dealing with it. And they pray. And again, th- that's, that's what Paul's talking about here. We gather together to, to share with one another. We get closer you know, to one another. And as we get closer to the day when Jesus comes back, we're going to face a lot of spiritual struggles and possibly even times of, of, of persecution, serious persecution. Anti-Christian groups and forces are growing in power today. You know, they're, and, and more of them are going to. And, and, you know, I get this newsletter and, and, it, and it, you know, it, it reports all the things that it sees coming down on the church and the word of God and, and Christians. And, and I was reading it j- just last Thursday and there was three things in there that were mentioned that was taking place. And this is just three things. It's the tip of the iceberg. And, and you, you may have heard of them. You, there was a teacher who dressed in drag and danced for the school kids during class time. It says, a teacher treats kids to a drag show during school hours. A former Kansas lawmaker, here was the second, wants Bibles removed from the classroom. We've, we've known that for a long time. Another school bans kids from wearing Pray for Peace t-shirts. And this is coming down every day, every day. Difficulties should never be excuses for us, you know, not gathering together. We need each other during difficult times. Instead, when difficulties come up, we should make an even greater effort to be meeting with one another. Like the other church, early church in Acts 2.46, part of its power was it said it continued daily with one accord in the temple. They went to church every day. That's what made the early church such a powerful church. So Paul is saying that someone who commits these kinds of sins, as this particular person did, should be excommunicated from the body of Christ and turned over to Satan in order that there might be the destruction of his flesh. That the flesh, and that's what we need. This flesh, what did Paul say? This flesh needs to die. Romans 6, it said it it needs to be crucified. It can't be suppressed. It can't be neutralized. It can't can't be, you know, pampered. It has to be crucified. It has to die. 
a life that's controlled by the flesh, a life that's living in open disobedience to the commandments of God as he's living after the flesh in this incestuous relationship, it must die. Paul said here in verses 3 through 5, I've already judged even though I'm not there. But when you gather together, notice, when you gather together, the church, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and my spirit there with you, in the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that the spirit, notice, the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That's the bottom line, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Let him experience the isolation. Let him realize what it is to be isolated from the family of God. So hopefully he'll repent. And the whole design, the whole intent behind this discipline is that he will repent and that he might come back into the fellowship. And the whole idea is, to, is, to, is if he isolates himself, let him experience what it's like to live apart from the fellowship of the body of Christ so that there will be repentance. So the ultimate goal, of course, is his salvation, as it says, so that he may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus, that he'd repent from his sin, he'd receive the forgiveness of God, and as a result, he'd be restored and he'd be saved. God's discipline of his children is always meant to be corrective and not punitive. It's not vengeful. God isn't angry or or wanting to get revenge or say, I'll teach you. He's wanting to be corrected. He's concerned about the individual. He wants them to be saved in the end. Now, what if he continues in this incestuous relationship? What if he doesn't want to repent? And this isn't just goes for this person, but but anybody. If they want to continue in in, in sin and they don't want to repent and they die in their sin. Now remember, in the original the uh, Bible, uh, the original scriptural writings, there are no division breaks like we have in the Bible. We don't have there were no division breaks, no chapters. So this uh, chapter five it continues on, and Paul says in chapter in in chapter six verse nine, as it continues to flow, he says, "Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God?" Don't be deceived, Paul says. And then he gives this long list of sins of those that that will not enter the kingdom of God. He says, neither fornicators. And then, like I said, he gives this list of those uh, who won't have any part in the kingdom of God. Shows us that wrong living will keep you out of the kingdom of God. Wrong living will keep you out of the kingdom of God. So in closing, the whole idea of turning this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh is so that he might repent, that he might give up his sin, that he might come back to fellowship with Jesus and the body of Christ. Why? That he might be saved. And this is the purpose, he said, in the day of the Lord Jesus. God is not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. Father, we thank you for this chapter, Lord. And and Father, help us to understand it as it's intended by the Holy Spirit, God. A lot of times people hear the word excommunicate or remove somebody from the body and uh, they take offense to it. They think it's, it's, it's unkind and, and lacking grace and mercy when it's just the opposite. It's because of God's grace and mercy 
that he has designed this particular discipline so that the man would see the error of his way and that he would come to a sense like the prodigal son who didn't want to live under the father's roof and the father let him go. The father didn't try to stop him. And the son got out into the world. He continued to live in sin until he had nothing. And then it says he came to his senses and he realized how well he had it in his, ho- in his father's house. And God help us to see how good we have it in the father's house with the father's people, our brothers and sisters, Lord. And Father, help us to love one another again, one another in this special bond, this special relationship we have with one another because of Jesus Christ. He is our Lord and he's our shepherd and he's our savior. Each one of us, God. So, Lord, we thank you. We give you honor and glory, Father. We thank you for your word. And, Lord, we thank you for the offering that we will receive today, Lord. We thank you for your, your, your generosity. We thank you for your faithfulness, God, and for always taking care of us, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.